Thank you. How many of you guys had a chance to do something good this week, do a good deed? I see a couple of hands, do a good deed. Some of you are thinking, what does a good deed look like? Uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus, the light of the world, and you'll see why I asked that question um, later on in the sermon. Um, so, of course, we're continuing the series, and we titled this Jesus, the I Am. And we've already established last week that Jesus is what? Bread. Yeah, Jesus is the bread of life. Now, when Jesus said, I am, he was using a grammatical construct to make a parallel between his words and the words of his father. Um, of course, God in Exodus chapter 3, when God spoke to Moses, um, in the burning bush. You guys know that story? You, you guys been talking today? Oh, okay. <laughs> now, each time Jesus said, I am in the New Testament, and when God actually said, I am in the Old Testament, um, they both were translated into the Greek known as the Septuagint. Now, Jesus' words and the words from God in Exodus 3 were identical. And this was a way in which Jesus was asserting his divinity, that he, in fact, is God. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus adds metaphors to these I am statements. And we're going to look at these quick seven I am statements by Jesus. I'll just take a, you know, a quick picture of the screen, but we see I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And we mentioned that we're only going to be covering uh, five of these seven um, I am statements, which will bring us right around um, Palm Sunday Easter. Now, these seven I am statements that you see, these are both used, uh, these are all used in metaphors. There are two more I am statements that Jesus uses in the Gospel of John. And these statements are not metaphors, but they are um, declarative statements that Jesus made that applies to him being God. The first one that we find is actually found in John uh, 8, verse 58, when Jesus was, was responding to a complaint um, by the Pharisees. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the verbs that he used are contrast with each other. Abraham was, but I am. Now, the crowd, uh, they tried to stone Jesus in verse 59 because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying when he said that Abraham was, I am. And the reason for that is because he was suggesting that he was the eternal God incarnate. So they didn't like that. The second instance of Jesus using this statement of I am applying to himself is in the Garden of Gethsemane, found in John 18 verses 4 to 5. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. 
And then in verse 6, it tells us that the crowd, they drew back and they fell to the ground because they realized the presence of God. Verse 8, Jesus confirms again that I am he to demonstrate one thing, to demonstrate that he was voluntarily surrendering himself to be crucified. So he's saying that although you're here to get me, I have power, but I'm surrendering, you know, this right to be crucified. So you're not taking me. I'm surrendering my life. Today we're focusing on the second I am statement, which is more of the metaphor that we find John 8 and verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now there are some basic things that we know about light. Light produces life. Things grow in light. Plants, vegetables, if you guys did your science project and you put your seed in a paper towel or newspaper and put in, you know, a jar. You guys did it before? No? Okay. See, when it comes to planting things, I think my family needs more than light. We don't have green thumbs. Give it to us, it's going to die. It's guaranteed to die. Even quicker than it's supposed to. But light produces life. But light also symbolizes truth. Uh, we often joke about saying, come into the light. You know, we're suggesting that sense of honesty, right? Come into the light. Um, light illuminates our path. We turn on the lights to see in darkness, whatever is happening, to see in darkness. Again, we also see that light provides a sense of safety. Now, how many of you want to sleep with a nightlight when you were younger? You were afraid of the dark. See some hands, like, okay, how many of you still do? Anyone still afraid of the dark? I see you, little, I see your hand. It's, it's, it's not too old to be afraid of the dark. I went to uh, uh, our, our Tyler turned 18 yesterday, we went to do VR yesterday. And yeah, so no more babies in the house. But we went there and we put on the VR, and all they said was, stand in the box. I was like, I got I to gotta go. I can't, I can't do this. I was like trying to take off everything. Like I felt like I was closed up. So even when you're older, there are certain things that we're still not used to. You know, my wife's like, I didn't know that about you. I'm like, yeah, I can't stand closed spaces. Because so, I felt that like I was just trapped. Put a thing over my head and said, cover your eyes. That was it for me. Anyway, I made it through. You know, all 40 minutes, I can't guarantee I'll do that game again, but whew. Light also provides healing. Sometimes we might move to warmer climates for health reasons or to get vitamin D. I know some people res resolved taking the pills, but you naturally get vitamin D. Um, also, light brings a sense of joy. Now, when I lived in Washington State, uh, fall months weren't the most joyful months for me. You know, getting to the fall, it's rainy, it's cold, and it's dark. And we had a few days here in Berkeley that reminded me of Anacortes. I'm like, where is the sun? And why is it raining and feeling a little cold than it's supposed to be? Um, so no joy when it's like that. 
But I also know the known fact for light is that the speed of light is what? How many miles per second? <laughs> Someone's pretty smart I'm saying three times 10 to the something, right? <laughs> the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. So traveling at the speed of light, we could go around the earth seven and a half times in one second. Now, light also travels from the sun, takes just over eight minutes um, from the sun to the earth. Now, based on this data, Einstein believed that if we could travel at the speed of light, time would cease to exist. If we could, if we could travel at the speed of light, time would cease to exist. And I want you to hold on to that thought for a moment. And I also want you to consider that Based on the speed of light, it means that there are some forms of light that we cannot see, like an x-ray. We don't see the light in that sense. Now, in Genesis 1, it's the first time that the word light is found in the Bible. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, the last references to light in the Bible is found in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Revelation 21, verses 23 to 24. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Revelation 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So each of these occurrences we find in Revelation it talks about what we will have in heaven. We won't have the need of any external light source because the Lord is our light. Now, in the Gospel of John, the word light is used 24 times. 24 times in the Gospel of John. So John likes using the reference of light because it describes Jesus. Now, I want us to look at a few themes that emerge from this dialogue. The first is this claim of Christ. John says in John 8 that I am the light of the world. Now, when he says that in John 8, verse 12, it's partly metaphorical and partly literal. The Bible tells us that God is what? Spirit. And those who worship him should do what? God is spirit and those who worship him should worship him in? Spirit and in truth. Right. But the Bible also tells us that God is light. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I told you to hold on to a thought earlier. What was that thought? That what Einstein said Yes, said if we travel at the speed of light, time would cease to exist. Based on that, 
This could explain why God is not limited by time or space because he's outside of both time and space. God has no beginning and he has no ending. In 1 Timothy 6 and 16, it says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, which means the human eye cannot fathom or even see the speed of light that's traveling 186,000 miles per second. So God is part of the invisible light spectrum. So God is invisible because he is spirit. So God decided to make his light visible. So light was wrapped in a body in the person of Jesus. So Jesus became the visible image of God. Colossians 1 verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus shows up and he says, as part of my earthly ministry, the part that we can see, I am the light of the world. So in the context of this verse, John 8 verse 12, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's drawing a contrast between light and darkness. He's saying that he has you know, come to bring light into a morally dark world. Jesus says he's pure and holy, but the world is impure and unholy. It's filled with evil. So he steps into our world to save it. Now, we naturally use light and darkness as a contrast between good versus evil or right versus wrong. So in a sense, it's the difference between what is overt and what is covert. Things that are overt, they come into the light. We can see them. They are visible. They're vulnerable. They're transparent. Uh, things that are covert are secretive. They're under the cover of darkness. It doesn't want to be detected. This is kind of the contrast that Jesus is talking about. Light and darkness, overt and covert. So Jesus speaks in contrast, but let's understand his context in this verse. Here's the context. In John 7, the Bible tells us it's the Feast of Tabernacles, or in Hebrew it's called the Sukkot Circle, S-U-K-K-O-T. Now tabernacles occurred, um, these feasts, they usually happen in late autumn. Do you guys know when autumn is? When is autumn? Yes, fall, specifically September, October, November. And it usually marks the passing of the long summer days. So if you're in those seasons, you might find that, um, like in Anacortes, um, we can see sunlight as early as 4 a.m. or even earlier, and then it goes down around 10 p.m. So when autumn comes in, it's, the, it's marked the passing, which is when they had this feast. Now, if you've ever read the Mishnah, which is the Jewish traditions, it has a chapter that talks about light celebrations. Now, I was telling my wife that I wish we had um, some candelabra. You guys know what candelabras are? I'm asking you guys all these questions. You know, candelabra? Candelabra, one word. Okay, so it's, so candelabra is this, uh, it's a big stand that literally just have candles, several candles can go on, that's what it's called. You've seen them before. During the feast, people would make boots or little huts in their backyards. They'd have their homes, but they'll have a little hut in their backyards. 
and they would literally live in these huts during the feast. They'll sleep in the huts, they'll eat in the huts, they'll stay there. That's their celebration. They'll have all their meals there. And here's the reason. The Feast of the Tabernacle was to commemorate the 40 days, or the 40 years, I should say, of the wilderness experience that God provided for the Israelites where he protected them. You guys know the story with uh, Moses, these 40 years. God sheltered and comforted and he supplied all their, their needs. After the wilderness wanderings, they were to always remember that God took care of them through this feast. Now, we actually have our own commemoration. What's that? We're going to take part of this today, first Sunday. Communion. So in with the feast that they have, the Sukkot, it's a seven-day celebration, or seven-day feast in Israel. Outside of Israel, they actually celebrate eight days. Now, this is all happening through chapter 7, so we need the, the history to understand this. Now, as we enter into John chapter 8, it is still the Feast of Tabernacles. The things that we don't see in the Bible, we can learn from history. Jewish literature tells us that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in biblical times, they would light four large candelabras in the Temple Mount. Each of these uh, stands, they had four golden bowls that were inside the Court of Women. That's what it's called, the Court of Women. This is a place that was frequent a lot. So a total of 16 bowls had to be reached by ladders. And they filled each bowl with oil and get this, they used the undergarments of the priests as wicks. Yep, I know. So Jerusalem was lit, literally. And so the, the Levites would sing, men would dance, and they would sing with torches in their hands. Now in the Old Testament, during the wilderness wanderings, God would protect the people by using a cloud by day to protect them from the heat of the sun and the pillar of fire by night to give them light. But it was also God's manifest presence among the Israelites. So on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle, they would light these four big candelabras on the Temple Mount area. And then from there, it's a remembrance that God took them from slavery to the Promised Land. So imagine being at the brightest uh, Christmas light show, maybe in, you know, uh, I think there's one in Georgia, Merida, Georgia, one of the largest ones. Or if you go to New York, just a big light show. So imagine being at one of these big light shows. This is Jerusalem. Now I want you to understand that all the lights that's taking place, this is the backdrop for this conversation. So Jesus is speaking in John 8. And if you read through John, you'll see that after every miracle, there's always a teaching. Someone gets healed, there's a teaching. That's what we're having here. So Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, surrounded by all the lights, all this illuminating lights, and that's when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So essentially, if he was on the mount, and he mentioned that statement, they would say, okay, maybe he's using another parable. And if he was standing on a boat and say, I'm the light of the world, it wouldn't have the same impact. So he waits for the ceremony. 
And he uses this ceremonial moment of the feast to make the statement because he understood that the people who are there would know exactly what he's saying. It's almost like you're having this ceremony just for me to declare that I am the light of the world. So everyone would understand exactly what he's saying, even if they didn't agree. Here's his call when he made the statement. Jesus was saying, just as God illuminated your way from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, I, Jesus, I'm identifying with God. Jesus will illuminate our way from the slavery of sin to the promise of salvation. That's what he was saying to them. He was declaring that he was greater than the light of all these candelabras that they were witnessing. He says, I know you have these bright lights, I know you have this celebration, but I am the light of the world. Jesus came to deliver us from a world of darkness to bring us into his wonderful light according to 1 Peter 2 and 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is what Jesus came to give. Now in order to understand the need of this light, him being the light of the world. We have to also understand from scripture the problem of darkness in the world. Now there are different places in the Bible that describes different kinds of darkness that affect all of us. I wanna give us four quick thoughts about these. The first is that we live in a dark world. We live in a morally dark world. Sin is widespread and we see it all around us. Now part of that dark world scenario is what Paul writes about in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the spiritual forces of evil in this dark world. Um, there are spiritual things that are invisible to our eyes which are attributed to satanic ways to influence the world. Think about most crimes. Most crimes are committed under the cover of darkness. Uh, looked at the national study that they did and it revealed that most crimes takes place between 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. They said that, is, uh, that only bold uh, criminals would commit crimes in the daylight, but most crimes are done between 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. And even the movies, they portray the same sentiment. Now, I like to watch a lot of in investigative shows um, like NCIS and CSI. And even just typical movies, and you'll see when someone comes out late at night from a bar and they walk down a dark alley, you're like, no, don't do it. Because you're expecting something to happen, right? Walking in a dark alley. And so here's what Jesus said in John 3, 19 to 21. He said, this is the verdict. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus says people love darkness because they don't want to come into the light. 
they like what they're doing. You know, it's tempting to justify these sinful actions because we enjoy what we do, but we're called to be children of the light, to walk in the light. Um, 1 John 1 verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're doing the right thing, and I'm doing the wrong thing, that is not true Christian fellowship. That is what we're reading. We both must reflect the character of Christ to demonstrate that Christ's blood has cleansed us from sin and to demonstrate the true Christian fellowship that should exist. Another thing we'll see about darkness is that we're, without submission to Christ, we have dark hearts. While it's easy to identify different sins in the world, it's not always easy to identify the sins of our own hearts. Sometimes we become blind to the sins of our own hearts because we're so focused on the sins of others around us. It's easy for us to see what others are doing wrong because we're so focused on it, right? Because we believe that bad sins are performed by bad people. So we never include ourselves in the equation. I spend several hours preparing for each sermon, but I'm not exempt from having daily devotions to commune with God. My sermon prep has nothing to do with my daily obligation to commune with God, and here's why. There's something God desires to say specifically to our church, but there's something he desires to say to us individually. Sometimes we confuse the two. Sometimes our spiritual lives are stuck and the church is stuck because we don't know how to discern our corporate response from our individual response. We know that we have the potential to commit sin, but do we recognize when we're actually living in sin? Do we recognize the sin of disobedience separate from the sin of pride? There are three categorical uh, sin that can easily influence our dark heart posture, the personal, social, ecclesial. The personal are sins that affects us individually. The social, sins that affects our relationships with others. So those are two things. But there's also ecclesial, which are sins that affects the church and causes disruption. So those three sins. We must be able to recognize the sins in our own hearts that will affect the trajectory of our spiritual lives. Because of Christ, forgiveness is afforded, but what is the usefulness of forgiveness if we can't recognize the sin? So, you know, have you guys ever prayed those blanket prayers? It's a Lord, forgive me for any sin, known or unknown. You guys ever do that? You know, I've done it before, it's okay. But we have to get beyond do that. We have to get beyond these blanket prayers of Lord, forgive me of any unknown sin and start saying, Lord, forgive me of speaking negatively about a situation or forgive me of not trusting you. Forgive me of not, you know, of, of justifying my attitude when I know my behavior is wrong. See, our sinful actions 
are potential dark hearts that I mentioned earlier, are in need of the light of Jesus to illuminate those dark spaces in our hearts. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, think about that, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we must be conscious that dark hearts exist in our world and we're all susceptible to falling into the trap of this sin. The next thing to see is that without submitting to Christ, we will act on our dark deeds. Ephesians 5, 8 to 11. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Remember what I said in our last uh, sermon series, that God is taking us on a journey. And here's the scripture that's reminding us that we need to be able to hear the voice of God so that we can be guarded from evil deeds. This is such a biblical truth and it's important for all of us to understand. Because when there is secret sin, you're living in bondage to that sin. Now we can all agree on the importance of having good accountability groups. But sharing your struggles with a close friend is not the same as being vulnerable to Jesus. So Jesus requires us to be vulnerable to him by confessing what he already knows. Now you're saying, well, why should we confess something to God if he already knows it? It's about us being honest to recognize our dark deeds and bringing them into the light. With that being said, when you have a trusted friend in whom you can confide, I'm talking about the friend that you can share whatever with and they can keep it confidential. When you bring that secret sin into the light, into their knowledge, the power of that sin that you once struggled with no longer has a stronghold over you. When you have good accountability, they'll tend to see if you're doing something that you shouldn't do or they'll see you going down a path and just say, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that. You guys have friends like that? If you don't, you need some. We all need people who can help us to not go down the wrong path. Our text says, confess and bring that sin into the light. You bring it into the light of Jesus, but also into, into the light of those who can keep you accountable. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Expose them, bring them into the light, and let the Lord help you. So we have to release ourselves from covert sin to experience freedom in Christ. Another thing is that without submitting to Christ, we possess dark minds. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul was saying that Satan confuses the minds of people to keep them in darkness, but God commanded a light to shine out of darkness. In other words, the same God who commanded let there be light in Genesis is the same God who will bring light to the minds of people walking in darkness. So we must pray for people who are in darkness that their minds will and understanding will come into that of God. God is wanting to help them. So in, instead of shunning them, we should pray for them. Now there are two purposes as to why Jesus was saying that I am the light of the world in this verse. The first is that Jesus desires to rescue us. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he wants to rescue us. Jesus came into the world to illuminate our dark world, our dark minds, our dark hearts, to bring us to the place of salvation. So if we follow Jesus, we won't walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. Now, this is not about doing, you know, good, you know, doing life or praying that Jesus will be with us, but we have to be surrendering our lives to God and then follow him. So he doesn't want us to remain where we are. He came to rescue us by bringing us to this place of salvation. And when we develop this relationship with him, he turns the table. The second thing we see is that Jesus repurposes us for his glory. Now that we are saved, he's saying, there's something that I want to do with your life. Once we come into this relationship with Jesus, once we are fully surrendered to him, he says, I want you to be the light. Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Which is why we don't just read one gospel. We have to read all four gospels to get the full story. Because if you don't understand John 8, verse 12, when he's talking about this in the feast, you will never understand when he says that you are the light of the world. So now he's saying, now that you have accepted me as your savior, now you are the light. From the seven I am statements that I showed you earlier, this is the only one that Jesus repurposes as part of our responsibility. He didn't call us to be the bread of life. But he says that we can be the light of the world after we've embraced him as the true light. He says, now that you've come into the light, I want you to be the light of the world. In other words, Jesus repurposes our lives to be a reflection of himself in this dark world. He wants us to represent him in this world by shining our light. Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So God rescues us and then he repurposes us to be his light in a dark world.
That's how Jesus commissions us to be his ambassadors. Now you can see how it makes sense when he's talking about saying, I am the light of the world. So now when you can recognize this, he's saying, now that you've accepted me in your life, and you're saying, yes, you're the true light, now he says, you go ahead and be the light. Now the latter part of John 8 and verse 12 says that whoever follows Jesus will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's already an expectation in this verse for all of us. I'm going to leave us with four realities about following Jesus. Number one is that following Jesus begins with a genuine belief. Jesus wants, you know, he warns us of the consequences of not believing in him. In this same chapter in John 8, not only does he says, I'm the light, but in verse 24, it says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So in verse 12, he's saying, I'm the light, and then he gives us this prerequisite to what needs to do, and then he says, if you don't accept me as the true light, you're going to die in your sins. Pretty straightforward. The next thing we see, number two, is that we're called to follow Jesus in a dark world. Jesus, the, the light who came because we live in this dark world, lies, corruption, injustice, all around us. So both spiritually and morally, our world is dark. And we're called to follow Jesus in this dark world. Jesus came to the world with knowledge that everyone is living in darkness and he must save us. So he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light as we read earlier. Number three is that we're called to follow Jesus overtly. We said that light is overt, darkness is covert. Now I love people who are overt. I love overt people because you know where they stand. You don't have to guess their intentions. You don't have to agree on everything, but you always know where overt people stand. Following Jesus requires an overt, visible, clear lifestyle. You know, the apostle Peter, you know, he was very overt. He always had something to say. You know, sometimes you talk a little bit too much, right? But he was real and honest. When they came for Jesus, took that sword out, chopped the, the air off, right? You know where he stands. He says, you know, you're Christ, the son of the living God. And then when he didn't like what he heard, he says, Jesus, don't say that. He's always saying something. Very overt. He always knew where he stand. And so he experienced grace when he messed up. When he messed up, Jesus went and gave him grace. Judas was covert. He was stealing money, plotting the death of Jesus. So he lived in darkness. God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for honest people to shine. So here's an honest question that I want you to consider. Would people want to follow Jesus based on the life that you live behind the scenes? I know what you want people to believe about you, the things that we can see. But would they want to serve your Jesus if they glimpsed your private life? If they were to 
go with you to some of the places that you go to, to be a part of the things that you do in secret, would they still want to serve your Jesus? And number four, we're called to follow Jesus together. As a church, we're called to be a community of light. Being a beacon of light is not tied to this church or any other church. It's tied to your relationship with Jesus. And because of your relationship with Jesus, then he places you in a community. And then, we, and then at the community, we get to proclaim the good news of the gospel and we practice good deeds in this city together, like with Project Peace coming up. Because we're serving God, because we have a relationship with Jesus, we get a chance to also do good deeds together. When I walk the streets of Berkeley, reflecting on, you know, the character of Christ, it's always primary and most important. I went to, I think it's one of uh, Rachel's famous spot in Berkeley, sizzling lunch, when for the very first time, and as close as it's been, I walked in and, the, and the, the guy who came to give the food says, P. Garfield, not even a member of the church. And then he says to me, uh, yeah, I, I talked to JP, I know what's going on at the church. <laughs> All good stuff, all good stuff. But the, the point I'm making is, just imagine if I had a tainted life. Imagine if JP had a tainted life. Because when, when, when I walked in, he was singing the praise like, oh, we're about to go have lunch. And he's just talking about how we get to. So these are things that happened. And, I went, and then I went back a second time because you know, my wife liked the chicken that they had. So I went back on Friday, and when I walked, he's like, I saw your name, and I just met with JP. And I just saw JP upstairs, and JP said, I just met with him. His name is Ethan. Ethan, in case you're wondering who it was. But when, you, when you're walking wherever it is, Fremont, SoCal, your life should be in such a way that people should always see Christ through your lives. See, I've shared the gospel to people who have gotten saved, and I never had to share the name of my church. Because when Jesus returns, he's not going to be concerned with the things that we're concerned about. He's not going to be asking me, oh, are, are you a pastor? How many degrees do you have? How much do you make? Jesus wants to know, did our life reflect his character overtly into the world? That's what's important. See, I want us to always consider that. If we bring our sin and darkness to Jesus, he will forgive us. And we can be on our journey of walking in the light. Not covertly, but overtly. Walking to be proud that we're Christians. You know, not the, the kind where we're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. And who knows? Well, you know, 
Yeah, I shared the gospel. To who? I mean, we have to start praying like, God, please send someone my way so I can share the gospel. That's always my prayer. Because it's easy for me to say, Lord, help me to share the gospel. No, I want when I'm walking through the door, you give me an opportunity. That's always my prayer. But most importantly, I want to know that when I walk down the street, people can recognize that I'm a Christian. That's what I want. I want my life to reflect Christ, and that should be the same for all of us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. As we're closing and we're going to be partaking in communion, I want us to make a commitment to prioritize Jesus over everything in our lives, over everything in our individual lives. We know that Jesus is the true light. But we're seeing in scripture that he says that we are the light of the world. I mentioned earlier that if we didn't read all the gospel together, we think it's confusing to see one text where he's, where he's saying, I am the light of the world, and then elsewhere we're seeing it says, you're the light of the world. That'd be confusing, right? But he's saying, as a believer, as a Christian, there's a life that we should live that should reflect Christ at all times. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to accept Christ into your hearts. Accept him as Lord of your life. He wants you to be moving away from the life that you're living, if you're living in sin. To live a life that's over it. And for all of us here that say we're Christians, he's still calling us to do the same. The call that Christ has for our lives is no different from anyone else. We're all called to repentance, to follow Jesus. How are you living? So Father, I pray for the one who's here that doesn't have a relationship with you. I pray, God, that they'll accept you in their hearts, receive forgiveness of sins, to experience the joy of serving you. I pray, God, that you'll just help them to understand, God, that you're not looking for perfect people. You just want our lives to be yielded to you. So I pray, God, that this will be that moment for them. For the rest of us, as we get ready to partake in communion, um, praying, Lord God, that you help all of us to surrender our hearts to you, surrender every care in our lives, God. Your word shows that not only are you the light of the world, but you're calling us individually as Christians to be that light. So I pray, God, that you help us to be that light. And as we get ready to partake in this communion, you said as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance of you, remembering the finished work of the cross. So we don't take this lightly. So I pray, God, that you will um, remove any hindrance that's causing us to not be able to serve you like we should. And I pray, God, that you'll just move in our lives individually. In Jesus' name, amen.